So hello, Bex. Hi. Lovely to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited. Oh, well, it was so lovely to hear from you. And I was very excited when I got your email. So that's really, really great. I love what you're doing and can't wait to share all of that with anybody who's listening. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing and, and your garden? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I am Bex and I am the owner of Botanical Tales, which is a floral business and I am a floral artist. I've been working kind of full time on this business for about 18 months now. Prior to that, I was in a corporate role, um, which I left because, yeah, the pull to kind of be outside of an office environment was was really too strong. So I've turned my hobby, as many women do, into, um, yeah, my full-time job and business. And I live in the south of England with my two young boys and two dogs and my husband. We live in a, a really busy market town. I've got a sort of urban garden, so a relatively small garden, um, one that's kind of teeming with wildlife and biodiversity though we I sort of tend to it to be that way and then I've also been an allotment owner for over 10 years now where we grow veg so gardening is a thing isn't it it's been around for a long time way before you decided to turn this into your business and way of working yeah absolutely it's um I mean Living independently, it's always been a feature in my life. Even when we were living in Amsterdam, we had a sort of terrace garden out the back and I would fill flower pots and it felt very restricted in comparison to what I could do when, you know, I was in the living in the UK and had a garden, but you kind of learn to adapt and do lots of container planting and all those kinds of things. Uh, but then even prior to that, you know, when I was growing up kind of in my probably sort of late, well, early teens, even younger than that, I remember enjoying so much going to the garden centre. And when I got my first job, um, taking my mum to the garden centre at the weekend to buy her some flowers for the garden to plant. And, you know, they've been, a, both my mum and my grandma have been a huge kind of source of inspiration and no doubt probably inspired me to even get stuck into gardening. So it's always been there in some form. I love that because actually my experience is that my dad was a gardener. And my mum was an enjoyer of his garden. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> she would go out with her in her dressing gown and pick the raspberries. And I remember her doing that with my children. But actually, it wasn't something my dad shared. He didn't take me into his greenhouse and show me what he was doing. It was his way of getting away from us, I think. So it was a long time before I actually, it was after I trained as a designer, garden designer, it's strange to say that I actually found gardening. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. And I think I have to be, I find I have to be very careful with my boys that I don't get like that because, you know, they're seven and four and obviously they want to run around in the garden and go crazy. And I'm trying to grow, you know, I grow most of my plants from seeds. I don't really, I try not to buy anything now um, in a kind of plant form, but that obviously means there's a lot of delicate things around. And uh, I have to be, quite calm when they're in the garden and I don't want it to be a place where they don't feel like they can run around and be crazy um, and I also try to get them involved in the greenhouse as well of sowing seeds and actually they're really good at pricking out now and things like that and and Hen yeah and Henry said to me the other day that he likes coming in the greenhouse with me because it helps him when he's feeling angry um, and I think for so, you know a seven-year-old to be able to articulate that and already feel the benefits of of just sitting calmly and doing something quite methodically is is magic really. Oh, that's amazing. And for him to be able to 
name it and to have the sensation and physical sensation in himself and recognize I'm feeling angry and then having a way of, of managing that. That is fantastic. But I think that's that's probably one of the positives of, of lockdown is that at school, you have to suppress many things that you're feeling just because you're in a classroom of 30 children. You can't, you know, and, and understandably so. But this is the seventh week when we've been at home and he's having to learn to manage these feelings in this environment on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, he might do the odd thing with me at the weekend, but actually every day we're doing these things together now. And he's he's able to kind of see the benefits, which is it's lovely. Absolutely. So. So you mentioned living in Amsterdam and your container garden. What what? there? I, I moved out there when, well, we moved out there as a family when my eldest son, Henry, was nine months old, I think. So with my job, I was working um, for Unilever and they embarked on this big program of moving, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of people over to the Netherlands uh, to do their job over there. And Goodness. yeah, I mean, it was, um, they announced the news about two weeks before I went on maternity leave with Henry and I, you know, you go into kind of protective mode when you're pregnant and I just literally didn't, it didn't bother me at all because I thought, well, actually it doesn't really matter because I'm going on mat leave and you could take a year off with Unilever. And so I just thought, well, that's fine. And then about three or four weeks after he was born, they contacted me and said, you know, the process is starting. Do you think you would be interested in moving? And honestly, the ordinarily we would probably not have even thought about it but actually it seemed to us to be the perfect time to do it bizarrely even though it's with a newborn because you know he would have been young he was young there was no kind of ties when it comes to school and nursery the Netherlands are a brilliant uh, country for work-life balance and childcare and all that kind of stuff so yeah it's cut a long story short we went over there with my job uh, in the November of the year that Henry was born, and we were there for two years, living right in the centre of Amsterdam. Amazing, a really, yeah, a really kind of traditional old house with a roof terrace that actually looked out onto, as far as the eye could see, kind of trees in this interior garden area of all the houses that surrounded the canals. And yeah, then we moved. My job got moved back to the UK after two years, so we gathered everything up. <laughs> um, annoying of them yeah I think it was we were it was one of those things where you either we either stayed and we made a go of it for a long period of time or we came home and and kind of took the experience for what it was and it it really shaped us as a couple and and shaped the values that we have in life so we were really uh happy with the time that we spent over there and honestly kind of think about it every week and the lifestyles that we had but at the same time we knew that we missed friends and family and I really miss the greenery. So the Netherlands is amazing because you can travel everywhere by bike and you, you know, you, you don't, we didn't have a car for two years, which was refreshing and, and it was all amazing, but actually it's quite a gray city. There's not a huge amount of trees, the canals, you know, in in the summer they're blue and beautiful, but we were there for the depths of the winter a lot of the time and it's gray. And I really miss that kind of vibrancy that the UK has Mm. Um, and having the countryside on our doorstep. Uh, was something that I struggled a bit with and and we knew that if we stayed we would have had to have moved probably somewhere else in the Netherlands outside of Amsterdam and really the reason we were there was for the Amsterdam life so it was kind of I think we would have left anyway even if my job hadn't um, hadn't moved but we came back when Henry was three and moved back to the town that I've lived in all my life which is in the southeast of of England. Where's that? Um, Just in it's in Farnham so quite close to Guildford in Surrey. 
yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, in the centre of the town. So five minute walk into the town centre. And it's a house that I actually bought off my mum when, gosh, we were, I don't know, 20 or something crazy. Um, yeah, and we, I had a lovely garden there, which we, we, it was a very small garden when we moved into the house and we had this plot of land that was in our deeds, but we didn't own it to the left of the garden. And we applied to the council to basically change the land use and we we successfully did that so I kind of tripled the size of my garden when I did that which was still quite small for a town garden but you know it was brilliant um but we moved back and we uh we decided to move just because we struggled with the light that the house had so internally we lived where we lived in Amsterdam we had beautiful floor to ceiling windows and um, we kind of got addicted to having that light <laughs> inside and so we decided to look for another house and uh, the first one that we viewed was about 100 meters away and um up this unmade road a 1960s build really really ugly but with the most amazing windows and open plan internal and a lovely nice size garden and that's where you are now and that's where we are now yeah so we we moved I was pregnant with Arlo so we moved in the December we'd moved back from the Netherlands uh in the I think in the uh, May time and I was pregnant with Arlo uh, due to give birth in March and we moved in the December. So, kind of, yeah, right, like a week before Christmas, basically, right in the depths of winter. <laughs> you had postnatal depression, didn't you, after Arlo was born? Yeah, I mean, it was never diagnosed um, by a professional. And I, I think that's probably in part because I didn't ask for help and also when people did come to see me midwives and things, um, I think potentially the questions that they ask are not really personal enough, you know, so, but yes, I went through a period of depression for quite a while after Arlo was born. Sorry, I interrupted you, but it's interesting you say that about the health visitors and about not being diagnosed, because I had the same experience. Mm. I also had postnatal depression. It was after my first child. And I remember saying to the health visitor that I was feeling resentful of the baby. And we're talking a long time ago, mm. she was 90. So, and I remember my husband saying to me afterwards, you mustn't say that because they'll keep take the baby away. Yeah, scary. Completely. And made the whole thing worse. And it was only years afterwards that I recognised I'd had postnatal depression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's very powerful not to, not to have that recognised. And I think for me, mine was more, um, it wasn't ever a sort of resentment of the children or anything like that, but it was a real, um, when I was younger, I suffered a lot from a confidence issue, basically. I really struggled to even go into a shop on my own and things like that. And it was almost going back to that. So, uh, you know, being worried about going out, um, quite, quite paranoid, actually, about what people were thinking and saying and feeling so lonely even though we'd just moved back from the Netherlands and in theory I should be <laughs> full of you know friends and family because that's the reason we came back and of course I was in the reality but when you're in that negative spiral it's very hard to see anything for what it is really. And I think are interesting as well I mean you should yeah experience it differently but actually it was what it was yeah and you were having the experience you had yeah exactly but I obviously we'd moved into this new house and I was watching the garden sort of unfold in front of my eyes when Arlo was born kind of early March. And that's actually when I started my Instagram account, kind of, I think it was around June time. Um, right. Yeah, because it actually started just as a 
I guess my vision for my Instagram account at the time, which is where the name comes from as well, was that I was planning to tell the stories of the flowers and things that were blooming in my garden. So whether, yeah, whether it be like the historical meaning of them or whatever it might be. And then I got more into the kind of styling and it's evolved into what it is now, but it was, it was a real kind of light that pulled me forward, I guess, to to watch the change and watch the garden come to life and discover all these amazing plants that for such a small town garden, you would normally expect to find in probably more traditional settings, you know, like lily of the valley and wild bluebells, um, mini lilac trees, like all these things that I'd never really experienced before because I'd always had new gardens that I planted in, <laughs> if you know what I mean, rather than an existing garden that you discover things come to life in. And interesting because you said it's quite a contemporary house. Mm, yeah. This house. And that's really interesting that the person who had it before had put in some really for very traditional English cottage style plants, hadn't they? Well, it's quite interesting because they were obviously avid gardeners, but the garden had become overrun because they were quite elderly. But what basically my road used to be a big driveway up to a main hops house because Farnham was basically in the olden days was just fields and fields of hops. And it's called Mount Pleasant because it's where they used to dump all the horse poo. So the soil is absolutely, you know, it's, it's rich and it's lovely. And if you look at, so I've been to a few of my neighbor's gardens and we all have similar kind of plants in our garden. And it's because it's, it's likely that this whole strip of land used to be the gardens of the hop house, which were then di- divided up into plots of land to build upon. So house. So the hop house is is right at the top, basically shut off from the road now. What was the hop? It was yeah, so it's like a farm basically. So it's where you know the farmhouse from the hop fields basically. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what this this is the history that my neighbours have told me, and it kind of makes sense because if you look around, there are, there are the same roses and the set. You know, it's just uh, it's you can see how historically the garden has grown and obviously people have done things like pave it over but but where it's been kept natural there's lots of the same plants in all of the different gardens up and down the road that's fascinating i don't know if you know claire opal and co no claire yarwood white she also lives in or near farnham i did my first podcast episode with her and she has an incredibly historic garden because Mrs. Earle, who was a contemporary of Mrs. Jekyll, mm-hmm. owned it as her country estate. She called it a small country garden. It was two acres. Oh, wow. And <laughs> Claire lives in what was the garden cottage. Amazing. That's really interesting because that's the same area as where you are. Exactly. Just outside London, isn't it? And yeah. Countryside. Very much so, yeah. So how, tell us how... You you intimated that you'd started your Instagram account and that you were thinking of telling the stories of the, of the plants. How did that kind of evolve into where you are now and what you're doing now with all your dried material? Um, so the dried thing came about probably in parallel to all of these things going on in my life um, and probably a, a kind of as a as a yeah direct result of quite a stressful time I would say. So. So I, when we were living in my old house, when we initially came back from Amsterdam before we moved to the new house, a friend of mine gave me a bunch of flowers when she came over for dinner one night with her husband. And there are, there are a bunch of flowers that you can buy from Waitrose and they contained a few everlastings in them, quite unusual ones, and a few kind of like um, 
ferny things and stuff like that quite an unusual mix of flowers and I left them in the vase inadvertently where they dried out basically and one day I noticed that they had dried out kind of thought how beautiful they looked and actually for many of them they hadn't changed from when they were fresh to when they were dry a bit like a helichrysum or something like that and I decided to create a wreath out of them and back then my method was to literally poke the stalks of flowers into a wreath base so very laborious really hard work and prone to kind of breakages and stuff but I managed to create this wreath that um, hung on my kitchen wall till maybe two years ago I think so for about three years still looking beautiful and that's when I first my eyes were kind of opened to I guess the process of drying flowers but that in the context of the fact that my mum and my grandma used to, they've always been, you know, people that bring foliage in from outside and had swathes of straw flowers hanging on their kitchen cupboards and stuff like that. So it wasn't completely alien, but it was a, I guess, a reawakening of something that I'd kind of um, known about before. And then, yeah, it was when I was on mat leave with Arlo that first summer, I decided to kind of invest and I bought um, my first box of dried flowers from a company called Essentially Hops and just had started to have a play around really. Started making wreaths and things like that and I was posting them on Instagram. People were asking me if I was selling them and it evolved from there. Um, my style has changed hugely since back then, but still working with dried flowers. I think it's fascinating because I do all this bringing things in and letting them dry. And when I first moved into our village about, it's about four or five years ago now, I had this sense of not knowing how to get to know people and not knowing how to share the creativity that I have. And so I, I joined up with a woman. In fact, she was, she was the vicar's wife at the time who was an art teacher and we did a wreath-making workshop together. And in order to do that, we had no budget because nobody wanted to spend very much. We were doing it for charity, so we didn't want to charge. We wanted to charge, but we didn't want to you know, preclude people from coming foraged and we collected teasels and ferns and all sorts of beautiful beautiful dried material which we then sprayed and did all you know added lovely ribbons to and we made really really lovely reeds we didn't buy any anything decorative at all um, in terms of plant material and I put vases around of dried things but I've never really thought of using them to the extent that you use them and in my fact, my husband calls them dead things, <laughs> which might have one thing, you know, might have something to do with it. But I love texture. Yeah. And what you get with, with, with dried material is that wonderful, wonderful texture, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And that's, but I think it's, you know, pe- people often ask me, oh, what is it? about dried flowers versus fresh but for me it's actually it's not one or the other I think actually they can work really well in combination when used together in displays and things like that but it is it's the whole process for me really the kind of growing from seed drying and yeah and then making something out of them whether it is you know whether you press them or you hang them to dry and then you make a wreath or a bouquet for a friend and and knowing that that those things that you create have longevity to them and can be enjoyed for for longer than just the week of you know fresh flowers basically yes and actually it's like vegetables it's that same process isn't it of sowing the seed and tending it and nurturing it and and then eventually being able to harvest it and use it yeah exactly exactly and I you know I so when I first started working with dried flowers I was buying them in and then that same year 
probably the year after, I think, I <laughs> managed to convince my husband to turn over a third of our allotment to growing dried flowers. Or actually just growing flowers. I don't think I was particularly, I'm not a very organized person in that sense, or I'm not very purposeful in that sense. I prefer to just grow what I like. I'm a bit better now because I'm using it for my business. But back then it was just a bit of fun. And I was growing, I grew all sorts of things. But it was then that I really kind of fell in love with the whole process versus just the creating, which is what I was doing before. And yeah, I love it um, to start something off in January and then be harvesting them by June, which you would be for your helichrysiums, is, is, is wonderful. And how do you feel that that impacts your well-being and your mental health day to day? What is that process, do you think? Well, I think for me, it's the escapism from particularly now at the moment with everything that's going on with being in lockdown and having the kids around all the time. And um, I'm definitely spending more time in the garden and on my allotments uh, and in the greenhouse. But but that is probably a reaction to the little headspace that I'm getting in the house because the boys are with me constantly. And actually, it's been a real joy because normally I've had so much work or I'm trying to juggle childcare and taking kids left, right and centre and cooking dinner and doing my work that actually the garden has always been that last thing that I do. And now I'm, it's definitely more of a focus just because I need it mentally more than I have before. But yeah, I think it's, you know, when I first left my job about 18 months ago, I remember sitting at my laptop, you know, this would have been in January after the crazy reef season and all of that that you've experienced as well. But I remember sitting in front of my laptop and just, you know, being like, well, what do I do? Because when I worked at Unilever, my day was defined for me in meetings and, you know, my inbox being full constantly. So there was always something to do, someone to reply to, someone to talk to. External forces. Yeah. Rather than being what's the word proactive yes exactly and I have never had to work like that before so I remember just sitting in front of my laptop and then and and you know I look back and I'm so regretful of that year because I was so entrenched in the way I had been working for 20 years that spending time in my garden on the allotment did not feel like work when actually the reality is of course it was because it was linked to my business and I was growing flowers and but I couldn't step out of my work nine to five kind of you know you're just you're just entrenched aren't you in that kind of way of working and it's it, the last kind of year I've been much better at, at, at allowing myself to see the garden as value adding for my business <laughs> um and that's helped a bit as well because it's validated the time that I spend out there too rather than it being seen as kind of you know a hobby or something like that so it's so interesting isn't it we we do this and I do remember when I started growth for me really not knowing how to manage my days in fact it's still very much well it's gone all up and it's all gone yeah because <laughs> I did have rhythms and routines and now they are very much impacted but it's it's interesting because in this house I have my husband and my daughter working in a corporate way mm. in, my daughter is 29 and that she they both are working very formally you know, and there's no allowance really for the fact that they're working in the house. You know, neither of them will just say, hang on a second, my, my wife needs me or hang they're just, it's very much, you kind of have to pretend you're not there. Yeah. Creeping around the place. And I think that's really, really interesting because it's not what is. What is, is the reality of, well, this is how we're living. Yeah. And how to manage that. And I think that's what's so stifling about corporate life. The, the, the lack of authenticity but then how difficult 
to translate and find our own way of doing it when, as you say, you're working for yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I really struggled with it. And I, I have the same as you, I was on the verge of nailing it <laughs> before lockdown happened. And now, obviously, I mean, for a start, a lot of the work has been postponed anyway. So my workload is not what it was before. And that has actually, in some ways, been beneficial, because I'm feeling a lot more creative, because I'm just doing things for fun now, whereas I was doing everything for work before. But yeah, I, it took me, it's taken me sort of 18 months, I would say, to to work out what a freelancer, if you want to call it that, a small business owner work plan looks like. And it's different in different seasons. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So my, in, interestingly, my busy season is really from September through till uh, sort of March, April time normally. And then the summer's really quiet because most people are not that interested in in sort of working with dried flowers in the summer because clearly you've got an abundance of absolutely everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and that's works really well with childcare because then I have the summer off with the boys and things like that, which, so that's, it's actually kind of works really, really well. And then obviously September with autumn coming in and all the foraging and the drying and um, wanting to bring nature into the home as we get out less because the seasons change you know it's all it is literally ebbs and flows with the season but I guess it's the complete opposite in the sense that most floral businesses are crazy busy in the summer and then less so for the other seasons that's interesting yeah and I was also wondering about your creativity because you said you were working for Unilever yeah I don't know if you were doing something creative for Unilever I was working in marketing so yes yeah yeah. I would say it's creative uh, as a profession, but the problem with a company as big as Unilever, and this is actually one of the things I really struggled with towards the end, and was I just felt like I was constantly fighting against what I wanted to be and what I was allowed to be, was that everything is process driven there, and you don't have a huge amount of flex as to what you could do because there's rules for pretty much everything, and that and you work with agencies who do the creative thinking, so you know, it sounds all well and good being a marketer, but in an organization that big, fundamentally what I really was, was a project manager, which is actually can be a very creative role as well. But it was just very stifling. You did it the Unilever way or you didn't do it at all. And towards the end, I didn't do it the Unilever way with the permission of my line manager, which was fantastic. But it wasn't sustainable because you're constantly fighting against everyone that wants, wants it done the right way, basically. When I look at your website and your Instagram, and I had a look at your latest blog post before we talked today. They're beautiful. Thank you. And what you're making is beautiful. Have you always had that as a child? Were you making stuff? Yes. And that's probably also come from my mum as well. I went to a very arty school. I went to Frencham Heights, which is a school near, very close no, to Heights. <laughs> okay. I had a scholarship for Frencham Heights when I was 18. And my parents decided I lived too far away and wouldn't let me go. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I loved it. I mean, my husband jokes because he says that all I did there was dance around and make creative things, and I, which is quite true. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad I had that. There was like, Absolutely. yeah, we had, you know, 15 people in a classroom from the age of 12 to 16 or something. So it was just such a nurturing environment. And so I've had that. And then also my mum is honestly one of the biggest crafters when she... 
she moved to America for a bit and obviously craft over there is huge as well. And I remember visiting her and her spare room cupboards, you know, wall to ceiling kind of wardrobes was just a craft cupboard with like different projects that she'd started and jewelry making kits and like decoupage. And so it's always been there. The photography side, I've definitely, it's one of the things that I've been trying to develop and get better at over the past couple of years and I mean I've done all of my own website myself mainly from a cost perspective but it's been a very iterative process the website I launched with kind of three years ago was shocking (laughs) Um, but you know you learn as you go basically you really do and as you're somebody who runs their own business like we both are everything don't we or we have to learn how to or we have to pay somebody to do something for us yeah and that's that's quite something because it means you have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be capable of putting lots of different hats on and yes, not what you actually do, but everything else behind the scenes as well. Yeah, I know. I got the um, I invested in the Design Trust diary this year, and I can't remember what the percentage is, but I think it's something crazy. Like they say, if you run your own business. I want to say like 70% of your time should be on marketing and those kinds of tasks. And obviously that's not what most of us want to be doing. So that's why this lockdown period has been really good because yes, I've been doing, you know, updating website and things like that, but the work isn't there in the, in the um, form it was before. So I've been able to do really lovely projects. Like I, um, I don't know if you saw the kind of hanging branch rainbow. Um, yeah. So I would never have done that ordinarily because you know, I, my clients probably wouldn't have had the foresight to do it. And then I might not have had the time to do it. And because it's, you know, it's one of those smaller projects, but I loved it. And that's, yeah, another good thing about what we're experiencing is that kind of freedom of mind. Absolutely. Do you want to just describe that project? Because somebody listening might not have seen it. Yeah, so I, I work with a client. So alongside my floral business, I also do um, support smaller businesses with marketing. So s- social media support and uh, website design and things like that. And they're a clothing brand in Farnham. And uh, the ladies, they're wonderful because they haven't lost hope throughout the whole thing. And they've basically continued with their online sales, but have used Instagram. They've got they've brought themselves to the forefront of their Instagram, basically, and they're doing a brilliant instagram igtv kind of you know uh talks about what they're doing with their clothes and it's just wonderful to see them embracing it but they came to me and said look we want to show people that we're still here because farnham's a busy town and there's people walking obviously getting out their daily exercise and things like that and we want to do something that pays tribute also to the key workers in the nhs Mm. and can you help us create something and you know we spoke about a wreath and things like that but I've I had this idea of working with naturally dyed ribbons and have a wonderful supplier called Roz um, who owns the natural dye works and she I reached out to her and said can you can you do a rainbow of naturally dyed ribbons and she said yes and sent some to me and they're, they're brilliant and then I basically had found this random ivy fallen branch on a on a walk with my sons a couple of weeks earlier that I dragged the whole way home. So I literally walked for four, four miles with that branch. Yeah. <laughs> Before you even know, knew you had a project for it. Yeah, no, I just saw it on the floor and I was literally like, that is amazing. And my husband was going, what, what? Okay. He's known me for so long. And I was like, well, just bring it home then. <laughs> you can't be dissuaded. Mine's the same. <laughs> it's got to be brought home. Yeah. 
So, uh, so I've got these great photos of me carrying that through the the rape fields. But um, and then yeah, I used dried helichrysum heads, which I had anyway because I, you know, they're always breaking off and things like that, and um, attached them to the to the branches. And it's now hanging in their window, and you know, they don't know when they're going to be able to reopen, but they see it as a sign of hope for their customers. And obviously, thanks to all the key workers, yeah. So that was lovely. What a lovely project. Mm. Yeah, and I absolutely, I think that process of being creative is fascinating because things do come together don't they you have to start and then I find that one thing leads to the next yeah and, and it very much is a process I obviously don't know where I'm going when I start and then by the end you've gone through a process and you've created something yes see I'm I'm the same as you but many people don't work like that it's so I, when I'm work, making a wreath or I don't know, something like that. I might choose the the primary colours, but other than that, I don't actually know um, how it's going to end up. And often I will start something that I'm making and think it's awful, but just push on through because I know that at the end it normally looks good. Um, But I don't have a set, okay, and this is why I really struggle with, I I take commissions basically. So I sell my wreaths online and the people who want to invest in them can give me their preferred colour choice, but I can't, make the same thing over and over again and so I have to I have to allow my customers to give me a bit of freedom <laughs> so yes you can tell me the primary color that's in there but I can't I need to be able to choose from all of my materials the ones that look good on the day but that is what designing is and um, once you because you know when I used to design gardens more often these days I tend to support people to get involved in designing their own gardens mm. so it's about me doing it for them although I still do do that for people sometimes, those customers who wanted to tell me, okay, we're going to put that over there and we're going to have a pergola here, we're going to have a... Oh, there was just no point in having me. Yeah. It's absolutely about taking the mix of what they want and what they've got and what the style is and that bit of magic and bringing all that together to make something really unique. There's absolutely no purpose in just making the same thing over and over, over and over again. again. Yeah. And I do think, I guess you probably find this with your, the gardens that you work on, or maybe not, but, but moving into this new house, we, we did a, we, we kind of gutted the whole thing in the sense that, you know, had it replastered and stuff. And we did a little bit of structural work, but we lived in it for a year before we did it because we didn't know where the light fell. You know, we did, and I'm still learning this about the garden actually, because until you spend a season in a space, or a year, sorry, across the seasons, you don't know where your favourite little spots will be? Absolutely. Four years in in my garden, and I can't, I've never had a garden as big as this. It's not enormous in some people's standards, but it's about, I'd say it's about 120 metres square, probably. It's got, a, it's got a stream along the bottom with a piece of common land, protected land opposite, which has to stay open, and it's an open view. Mm. And it's been really quite tricky I don't show it on Instagram very often because at the moment it isn't at all how I want it to be in the long run. I'm sort of playing with that idea and thinking about authenticity and maybe sharing much more of actually what it is like. Because currently we've just cut beds and we're growing a an annual meadow again. We did it last year mm. and it was very, very pretty. But right now the beds are completely flat because I'm waiting for it to come up, which of course is not at all what I want in the long run. But for now, not knowing quite what I'm doing because we might build an extension, 
I have to go with the flow of what's here rather than commit to, to a lot of expensive activity, which I might then all have to change. Yeah, I, I, I get you. I mean, we, we don't have a big garden at all, but I redid my back border to try. Basically, I'm, I want to move to more of a kind of a prairie style garden, which I realise is, is very hard to do. Yeah, in a very in a small space. But but that that basically having a garden that has interests the whole year round, because what I inherited was absolutely lovely. But most things died back to nothing in the winter. And what I want is spring um, is seed heads and, you know, all that kind of stuff, grasses, so that there's interest. Because in a small space, those bare patches are even more obvious than in a bigger space. Patcher is completely crucial. Yeah. Small, garden. small gardens are, are, are my, are my favourite to design, really. And I think that might be partly why I'm trying. Because you're contained. It's more of a stage set. It's more of a styling and staging yeah plants next to each other in the pots and, and what's going to show when yeah i think your idea of using the natural planting is lovely do you know the book dream plants i think it's called dream plants for a small garden no put it in the notes and i'll let you know it's noel kingsbury and it's about that type of planting in small gardens interesting it's very much a sustainability wildlife focused book so it would scoop you down to the ground yeah do, do tell me because we do so basically we have that that's always the intention with my garden particularly with the boys because I think they they really benefit from having wildlife around them so we have a sunken Belfast sink which you know that they're, they're tiny but we've got unbelievable amount of newts in there we counted four frogs the other day we've we had um a damselfly that the boys managed to hold yesterday and you know it's it's getting them used to the insects and the spiders and the bees and all those kinds of things. Um, and obviously providing that space for the biodiversity as well. So I always kind of have that in mind, but my, my flower bed is similar to yours because I really set out on a mission to change my garden this year. So I stripped it all back. I dug all the things up that I had. I've had some amazing peonies that I inherited and I just shoved them all in one bed on their own so that they can just be green when the flowers are over and that's fine. And then I wanted to grow everything from seed, but as you can imagine, I'm growing like echinacea from seed. And I'm thinking, am I going to get anything this year? Like, you know, I know I will, and it will be later, but I'm having to be so patient. And what's the thinking about not buying anything at all? Because you could buy nine centimetre pots, which are really quite inexpensive and get off very, very fast. I think it was more a... um I mean, I didn't set out to like set myself a challenge because I'm really not that kind of person. But I, I love I'm a bit obsessed with um, seeds and seed catalogues. And I basically just got completely um, sucked in by those January, February ones that land on your doorstep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, particularly the Chiltern seed ones. And and I, I'd, I I'd, the year before I'd been to visit a Pierre Audouf, however you say his name, um, garden in Norfolk. And I had a long list of, I basically took their planting scheme. They were handing out leaflets. I took their planting scheme and had a long list of the flowers that I loved. And Chilton Seeds had the seeds. And I thought, I'm just going to try and grow them. Um, And everything's germinated. It's brilliant, but it's all small. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting because I did exactly that same process. I decided, okay, I'm going to keep, these are the beds. This is how it's going to be. I'm going to grow everything from seed. I've got my greenhouse. I did it all in order. I got the greenhouse that I was going to, then I bought my seeds. And then we decided we did actually really quite like an extension on the kitchen. Uh. (laughs) I've got all the seeds and they've got dates for two or three years. So they'll probably be all right. But I didn't grow the whole, all the perennial stuff. 
because I just thought I can't possibly look after it. Yeah. Years whilst we decide whether we want an extension and whether we can get planning permission. Yeah, exactly. So I, I did exactly the same thing. And I did it from Chilton Seeds as well, because they're around the corner from us, actually. Yeah, they are, aren't they? You've got all the good stuff with you, including my, yeah. brother, my brother and his wife. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. I've got you. Yeah, exactly. They're really close. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this has been a lovely conversation. I'm going to ask you one more thing before we stop. Yes. It's about my flower press. Because yes. I recently invested in a flower press. I haven't had one since I was a little girl. I got it from that lovely woman, Naomi, at three two, uh, These Two Hands. Oh, yeah, she's wonderful. Yes, yes. She's a lovely, lovely person. And it's beautiful. And I, my question is not so much about the process of drying them, although I think it, of pressing them, although I think that would be useful for listeners to hear about. My question is how to use them once I've got them in a way that doesn't look like Granny's cards. Yeah, that's a tricky one. <laughs> I think so. I think there's so many ways that you can use pressed flowers now. They don't need to look grannyish at all. So I've actually, I don't, we haven't spoken about this yet, have we, about the book? So no, I, yeah. Actually, just yeah. Actually, we haven't talked about the book yet. Yeah. No, so yeah. I talk, a, and I have a book and um, there's a section on that in that which talks all about how you can press things. And really interesting, something that you might be interested in is the pressing of larger things like big leaves and stuff like that that you can use in, in displays. What do you mean? So if you were to make a kind of dried floral display, if you can basically dry sort of ferns flatter instead of them crinkling up and it gives you a really nice kind of base to work with. So there's that. But but on how to create things with... So one of the projects that I have in my book, and it's super simple, is to create, um, you know, cards, basically. So thank you cards to your family. And I've done that a bit with the boys since lockdown, which is basically pressing a few things in the garden that we found, getting some beautiful white... Um, cards. So we use Caddy, which are this uh, supplier that they source their paper from um, India, I think it is. And we just stick them on the front with a bit of washi tape and write what the variety is and when we picked it and pressed um, it. Yeah. So a much more temporary way than sort of trying to hide the fixings and make yeah. it into a bouquet. No, gosh. So yeah, I don't do that. But and then I think about the way I like to think about it, although it is entirely dependent on style. And I say the same when I'm teaching wreath workshops and stuff is, I think negative space is really important in these things. And I normally create my pressed artwork with some beautiful frames from a company called Moeb. And I think they're Swedish, but it's it's basically an oak frame with clear glass, no back to it so that you yeah, so you sit it against the wall, and then you can see all of the structure of the the flower basically and you just keep it really simple you could have one astranthia for example or you could do a collection of pansies with their leaves on and the stalks and sometimes even the roots if you don't mind lifting a few of your plants up you know it's I think it's um for me it's it's almost taking it back to when they were used as a way of recording specimens and stuff like that because you want to see the whole thing you've got me excited that is brilliant and I've not thought of using those I've actually got those frames in my loo I've got beautiful I think it's Sanderson's wallpaper with with birds and leaves and insects all over it and I've used those frames to define certain birds I think oh, they nice. are yes sort of focus point opposite the loo but but framing the wallpaper yeah perfect um, yeah, yeah same sort of idea so let's just talk about your book because I nearly, nearly didn't 
do that. It's called Everlastings. It's actually coming up next week, which is the 14th of May. So by the time this comes out, this this podcast, it will be out. It will be available. It will be, yes. And for anyone that's pre-ordered, they will have it on their laps. And I, I hope that it is um, a source of inspiration and joy in lockdown because... Yeah, it's it's a beautiful book. It um it's obviously about dried flowers because that's my thing, uh, and it is I, I kind of describe it as part craft, part nature. I wanted to be able to help people work with dried flowers, you know, make projects with them and things like that. But I also wanted to talk a bit more about what we've just talked about today. Really, the the process of growing from seed and there's. There's a section on how to incorporate them into your garden. So whether you've got, you know, a balcony space or, or a bigger garden, what are the things that you need to consider? And I share a kind of list of my favorite things to, to dry from the garden. And then I also talk about foraging. There's lots of information out there, but my favorite things to forage and how I go about doing it. And yeah, and I guess it's threaded through the whole thing as a, a vibe of sustainability and a mindfulness, although I know that word is very overused, but it is about you know, it's about connecting yourself to nature and, and what's going on around you and realizing that really, even if you're in a city, you can find a connection to nature and you can go foraging and you can grab, you know, the last bunch of flowers from a flower store holder or something and dry them yourself. And you can look things in the crack. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's it's hugely accessible. I got asked to interview for a magazine the other day on the topic of the book. And she was saying, what, asked me, what tools would you recommend people buy to get started? And I said, honestly, nothing, because you don't need to, you know, you can simply make a wreath base from forage clematis or honeysuckle or whatever it might be. And start with things that you've got, see if you like it. And then if you really want to go on, you can invest in, you know, your florist, florist wire and botanical ribbons and all that kind of stuff. But you don't really need it. You can press flowers in a book. You know, you can you just need your eyes, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And it's about going through the process. Yeah. I loved what you said about negative space as well, because I think that's one of the things that I really notice about people who design their own gardens and don't quite get it get it as good as it could be. Mm. It's easy to forget about the relationship between things. Yeah. You know, and to think, okay, well, I'll have a pergola all over there, or I'll have a pond here, or I'll have a patio there, but actually not to consider how those things connect to each other, what that space in between is. Yeah, see, my mum always said that to me when we moved into this garden. She said, it's about the journey you take people on from one place to the other, even in a tiny space like mine. She was like, you've got to think where the eye goes, what you'll be doing there, and how does it interlink with those other spaces? Absolutely. And what's your focus when you when you turn around that corner? What do you see? How are you drawn through? And how do you make it so that you can't see everything from the from one spot? You want to through your garden. Yeah, completely. And that's what's so tricky about my garden, because it's all laid out currently, all laid out flat and flat. And there it is. Yeah. And then you're looking onto your common land as well. Right. So it's just yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then people across there on the days when they're looking after it. And they're looking at us. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a it's a challenging one and it's exciting as well. It's, it's sort of a process in, 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 in process at the moment. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like it's a project and one that you'll be there for a while. So it will it will grow with you. Yeah, exactly. And this is it. And I love my greenhouse, which is which is the first thing that we ever did when we got here. So I in this book I'm reading, I think we were talking about it just before, but The Well-Gardened Mind, there's a paragraph that she writes about a greenhouse and it just rings so true. So I highly recommend that you get it because 
she basically talks about the haven that it is. And I posted something on my Instagram stories a week or so ago about exactly that. Does anyone else enjoy the smell of their greenhouse as much as I do? Absolutely. And mine is cedar, so it has that extra sort of... Oh, lovely. But it's actually the smell of the plants, really, isn't it? It is. So she says, what is it that is so special about entering a greenhouse? Is it the level of oxygen in the air or the quality of light and heat or simply the proximity to plants with their greenness and their scent? It is as if all the senses are heightened inside this private protected space. I think that it's the fact that it's a private protected space. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's it's wonderful. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh. and I think probably at that point we really ought to stop yes just because if anybody's listening this long it's been quite a long listen yeah <laughs> and it's been a really really lovely conversation I think you and I could go on for hours I think yeah it's probably reflective of the fact that we're in lockdown as well right so it's it's rare that I get to talk to another adult apart from my husband <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> no it was lovely to talk to you yeah. Lovely. Thank you, Beck. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me.